Turn to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus 40, our text is verses 34 through 38. Exodus 40 and 34, this is the word of the Lord. Then the the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Amen. So ends this portion of God's holy and inspired word. May he add his blessing to it. it I would rather the higher number, Tim said this morning, one something. 84 sermons in Exodus. How about that? We've uh, all labored long in Exodus. And the, the question you know, that's on my mind as I bring us to the end of this book is, you know, what, what's God going to leave us with, right? We've been in it for so long. We've, we've covered so many of the same things with all the repetition that's in this book. What's God going to end on? And surprise, surprise, he sort of repeats himself again. He, he reminds us of what he's been telling us over and over and over again. And it's simply this, that, that he, he declares again to his people that he is with them and that he will remain with them. And he's not going anywhere. We've observed that chapters 35 through 40 are this great climactic moment in Exodus. God's design for his worship by the people of Israel is finally coming into existence, right? After all the back and forth of being delivered out of Egypt and and going into the wilderness and being instructed in the specifications of God's worship and falling into sin and then being returned back to the covenant. Now, finally, they have come to establish the tabernacle. And here tonight we see the Lord comes to dwell in the tabernacle. Finally, God's worship is coming to be. And if we can think of these final six chapters as sort of a, a firework that's, that's launching itself up into the air. These five verses are that peak at which it terminates and explodes in, 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 in a dazzling glory and, and, and loud sound as God declares finally who He is, what He's going to do, reminding them of all that He's said so far. You know, the passage is almost poetic in, in its description of God's descent into the tabernacle. You know, the the word cloud is used in every verse. There's a reference in most verses to the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. There's there's corresponding references there in 34 and and 38 to, to the glory of the Lord connected to the cloud and the fire of God connected to the cloud. All of this connected to this handmade tent in which God has chosen to dwell. One commentator says it was the Lord's dwelling to which he came in all his glory. 
the reality of his divine nature, and in all his fire, his positive holiness. And it's important for us to remember that the cloud, as it comes into this tent that has been instructed and constructed and now set up and built, this has been put together, so to speak, it's important to remember that this cloud that comes is not simply a symbol of God's presence. It's not just a symbol of God's presence. One, one writer called it an actual vehicle of divine eminence. That it is God come near to His people. That, that God actually comes, think of it, and takes up space among His people. So, if this is the Lord come down and His glory filling the tabernacle, what is it that this is teaching us? It teaches us what it is for God to come near to His people. And we're really just going to make two observations tonight. In the first couple of verses, we'll see that the Lord came and, and dwelt among His people. And secondly, we'll see in those last three verses that the Lord faithfully led the people. That He dwells among them and He leads them. First, let's see this, that he, he comes and dwells among them. They're in 34 and 35. The cloud, as it comes and descends into the tabernacle, heralds the arrival of the Lord in this earthly home. Look at 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Some scholars suggest that the, that the language used here has a sense of promptness or... Um, or, or impatience even, really, that, that, that would combine to suggest a sense of urgency between 33 and 34. So if you look back up and you see, we might even connect the end of 33 to 34 by saying something like, so Moses finished the work, and we take the period out. So Moses finished the work, and then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That, that there was really no pause between these events, that as soon as it was finished, the Lord came almost to suggest that the Lord was eager to be among His people, that He was waiting and, 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 and expecting them to finish so that as soon as they were done, whoom, there He is, the cloud fills the tabernacle, eager to be among His people, excited to join them in their journey and in the camp. But in all of this and in His coming down, there is a glaring... Um, sort of omission, as it were, and it's in verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud kept Moses from entering the tent, and this should startle us. And doesn't it, when you think about it? Wait. Moses couldn't go in the tent? The Moses who's been on the mountain, the Moses who saw the back of God, the Moses who witnessed the burning bush for himself, the Moses who has been speaking on behalf of the people to the Lord, the Moses who interceded and pled for the Lord to spare the people from destruction, this Moses, he can't go in the tabernacle? God is there with them by His grace and by His mercy. And yet, for all of Moses' meekness, 
and for all of his love for and patience with the people and for all of his experiences that he's had with God so far, Moses can't go in. There's still something missing. There's still something missing. And, and most immediately, what's missing is the, instru- the, the specific instruction for how the people will approach. And that's really the whole book of Leviticus. How are the people to come near by way of the tabernacle? Leviticus answers that question. If you, if you have your Bibles open, you can see the beginning of Leviticus in chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And on and on Leviticus goes, describing all the ways the people are to come. All the ways they are to approach God as He lives among them in the tabernacle. And and the great point of Leviticus is that the only way to draw near to God is through the way of bloodshed. So Leviticus is really just a giant recipe book for what kind of animal you need to kill and bleed in order to draw near to God. What kind of sin have you committed? Was it corporate? Was it private? Was it intentional? Was it unintentional? All of these different things. What kind of blood needs to be spilled? Leviticus answers. What innocent life must be sacrificed in order for the guilty to come near to God? And so you see, even here at the end of Exodus, as Moses can't go in yet because these specifications have not yet been given, Moses can't go in. And so even now, at the end of chapter 40, the tabernacle is still pointing beyond itself. You see? There's still something missing. And for for Moses, it was just Leviticus. (laughs) But it's much more than this. The tabernacle is indeed the place where where sinners can come and live in fellowship with God. This is its design for Israel to draw near to God. But still, Moses is not sufficient. He can't go in. The tabernacle is not the long-term solution to this problem of sinful man and holy God, you see. As wonderful as it is, in the context as beautiful as it was for these people to have a way to approach God, it's not a long-term solution. Verse 35, when Moses is not able to enter, really ought to make us say, what's missing? What is missing? You know, and the immediate answer is that Moses isn't good enough. The tabernacle is not good enough. Their insufficiencies, their insufficiencies point us to the one who is sufficient. They make us ask of Scripture what's missing. And the Scriptures tell us from all over that what's missing is the true mediator and the true tabernacle, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, everybody... Well, I shouldn't say everybody, that's insensitive. You know, plenty of us have heard, right, from John 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And have you heard someone preach that and say, He tabernacled among us? Do you see? He came and dwelt among us. Jesus, 
the word become flesh from John chapter one has come and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. You catch these words that are connected to the end of Exodus glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, John says, Jesus is the tabernacle. He's the true tabernacle. He is the one who has come just as God did in Exodus and dwelt in the tabernacle. So Jesus has come down and dwelt among us. For what purpose? So that sinners might be reconciled to a holy God. The tabernacle was was the go-between. It was the mediatorial work of Moses between the people and God. It was where God met with them. And where do we meet with God? In the Lord Jesus Christ. For we cannot go on our own. We are full of sin and pride. But in Christ we can meet with God. Earlier on in John chapter 1, the beloved apostle writes that he was in the world, speaking of Christ, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, the Lord came near to his people, Israel, in a cloud, in a tent. But to you, beloved, he has come near in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has come near in the incarnate word. And there is no other way to come near to God. The Israelites could not have come but by way of the tent. You know, they tried back in chapter 32 to come in their own way. And we know how that ended. But now finally, as we've reflected over these last several chapters, they have come according to what the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord comes and meets them. And so also, there was no way for them to meet with God, but through this mediatorial work of Moses and the tabernacle, there is no way for us to know God, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, at the risk of asking a question that seems silly in the face of, you know, regular worship attenders think of it please in your heart do you know the lord jesus the question that we must always be asking ourselves every morning when we wake up am i waking up in myself am i approaching this day in my own strength or do i know that i am weak and do i know that my only hope to live a life before the lord is through my lord jesus christ who lived and died and lives again for me The Lord kept Moses away here in Exodus 40 and in so doing begs that question and points to the one who is never kept away. Jesus, because of him, the, 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 the veils in the tabernacle and the temple in Jesus' day have been torn down the middle, ripped in half so that if we are united to him by faith, there is nothing that can keep us away from God. Not your sin, not your weakness, not those things that you have forgotten to repent of. 
Nothing keeps us from him. Now, that doesn't mean we can sin as much as we want. You know, it doesn't mean we are unrepentant people, but it means that our way into glory and our way before God is not based in ourselves. It is based in our Christ who has won the way for us. Do you know him? He is with us. He has come and tabernacled among us so that we might know God. Praise the Lord. Not only do we see that God has come near to us, but we also see here that the Lord faithfully leads his people. For God to be with them was a good thing. The cloud, yes, it was a barrier that Moses could not cross at this particular moment, but the Lord was still there. And, there, you know, there's this shift in 36, right? This, this stark statement of 35 that Moses couldn't enter the tent when everybody was expecting that Moses would be able to enter the tent. But 36 sort of alleviates some of this, reminding us of, of another function of the cloud, it, simply that he, he guides them and he's faithful to them. Look at, uh, look at 36 with me. Through, throughout all their journeys... A little bit of uh, foreshadowing there into Leviticus and Numbers. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." A couple of things here. Notice, notice first that, that in his guiding of them, in his presence with them, as he leads them, the people wait on the Lord. They wait on him. Not the other way around, you see. Um, he, he was not there. God did not descend in order to be at the beck and call of these people, but rather he lived in their midst as the sovereign Lord. The, the people were at his disposal, not the other way around. And hence, we get these 36 and 37 where it's very clear that the people didn't leave where they were until the cloud rose up and directed them where to go. They, they, it was not for them to sort of find a nice place where they could feel comfortable for a little while. And then when they decided that they'd used up those resources, they moved on to another comfortable rock or oasis or whatever they were looking for in the wilderness and, and sort of expected the cloud to kind of anticipate their need and desire and sort of move in front of or next to them as, as much as they wanted him to go and, and sort of place them where they had picked out. This is not the way it worked. They are his people. And he leads them. He will guide them where they need to go. There's actually more specification on this if you wanted to flip over to numbers chapter 9 and see in numbers 9 verse uh well we'll jump into it about halfway through verse 18 of numbers 9 there's this description of, of how it worked with the cloud moving and the people following numbers 9 18 at the command of the lord the people of israel set out and at the command of the lord they camped as long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle they remained in camp even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. You catch that? Even if it was a long time, they didn't go anywhere. 
they stayed where they were supposed to be. Verse 20, sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle. And according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. And then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they set out. One commentator describes it like this. It was the Lord's business and not a matter of anxious care on their part to get their guidance right. There's more to that, but before, before I read it, is it, don't you feel like sometimes the Christian life, we live it like that? Where we're sort of hoping that maybe we'll just get right what the Lord wants us to do? <laughs> I hope this is the right decision. I hope this is the right decision. But the example that we're given here of what it's like to live with God and be led by Him is what this commentator says next. He says about Israel, all they had to do was rest and wait and watch, keeping their eyes turned upward and fixed on their presiding God. And so here's the question I would ask you to consider in your hearts. How does God lead you now? There is no cloud or fire in here. When you get home, there won't be any cloud or fire in front of your car as you drive back to your house. How does God lead us now? Like the Israelites, Christian, you must wait on God. We must wait on Him. To use that phrase of this author, we keep our eyes turned upward, fixed on our presiding God. That God who governs and arranges and moves all things for His purpose and glory. We wait on Him. Now, the idea of waiting on God is, is all throughout Scripture, predominantly in the Psalms. Before I read one of those verses to, to give us an example, I thought Thomas Goodwin has a good line on waiting for God. He says, waiting is an act of faith, but it's an act of faith that is continued or lengthened out. You know, sometimes we do something as an act of faith. We tithe, right? We give money to God's church, and that's an act of faith. Or we rise early and we, we read our Bible, and that in and of itself for us is an act of faith and dependence on God. But waiting on God as a lifestyle it is, a, is a continued act of faith. It's something that, that is long, sometimes much longer than we want it to be, as we wait upon Him and see what He would do and trust that He will work. And so we read in places like Psalm 27 at the very end, after all the trouble that David's in, he, he speaks to his own soul and says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. How do we wait? I think it's much simpler than we realize that the Israelites were waiting on God simply by putting to use the ordinary means that he had given them. Now, we would argue presently that cloud and fire floating around in the sky and directing us where to go isn't very ordinary. And we're right, it isn't very ordinary. But for them it was. That was their ordinary lifestyle, was to wait on the cloud and the fire to go. For us, what God has given is different ordinary things. We call them the ordinary means of grace, right? The word and prayer and the sacraments. 
these are those paths that God has called us to walk. So as we live our lives and as we go through difficulty, how is it that we are to wait on God? How is it that we trust him and and follow him? He has given it to us in the word. So that as you sit under the preaching of it, there's this mysterious heart work that goes on by the Holy Spirit. For those who participate in faith, we are, are made new in our inner man by the ministry of the word preached and proclaimed by it taught by God's chosen heralds. As we pray, not, not just in private, but, but especially in the, in the corporate sense of God's people. As we pray back His Word to Him in a conversation that the Word is spoken and we pray it back, the Lord by His Spirit does a miraculous thing upon us that we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ and, and we begin to walk that way He has led us to walk. And the sacraments, time would fail us to discuss the mysteries of baptism and the Lord's Supper but you know, don't you, from experience, you know that they strengthen the heart of a Christian. That they remind us not of some decision we've made, but they remind us of what God has done. These ordinary things, just as the people would, would rest and wait for the cloud to go, so also we, every Lord's Day especially, gather and we wait on God. And this is how we cling to Him. Not by having a proof text for every decision that we make every moment of every day during the week, but by coming to him as his people and sitting under the ministry of these ordinary means of grace and then going out into the world and living like Christians. This is what God has called us to. He he leads and guides as we wait upon him. But also notice that God stays with them. This is verse 38. It declares that the cloud was meant to be in the life of Israel, a a permanent fixture in the life of his people, to be with them at all times throughout all their travels. See, for verse 38, the, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. It's, it's a foreshadowing promise that all of what's about to start happening in the rest of the Pentateuch, God is there. That as they enter into the land in Joshua, God is there. And He is present with them, that He will not forsake them. He is faithful because He's faithful. Later on in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses declares to these, some of these people, the second generation people, Moses declares to them that that as they go into the land that's been promised, as they anticipate entry into this land of Canaan, God will be with them. And, and Moses says to them, listen, it's not because you're so valuable. It's not because you're so good that God's going to stay with you. He says in Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. He, he will stay with them. And the promise is, is threaded throughout the rest of these books of Moses. And I say to you tonight, just as God stayed with them, so also He is with you, believer. Not only has He come near to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only has He brought us into the family of God, redeemed us from our sin, and, and has set us on a destiny for heaven, but so also He is with us in all of the in-between. There's nothing in which God is not present in the life of His people. 
This is why Paul can write in Hebrews chapter 10 to the persecuted church of the ancient world. Reminding them that the Lord is faithful. What does he say? He challenges them first by saying, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, which is a daunting task, isn't it? Hey, believe what you believe and don't shake or waver from it at all. Slow down, brother. But what's he follow it with? For he who promised is faithful. All the promises of Scripture. All the things that he has said he will do. You know, in Philippians chapter 1 where he says that he will see you through to the end. Where he will always be with you. He who promised is faithful. And there's nothing between here and glory that will cause God to abandon you. Nothing that will cause him to run away. Tim and me and Matthew and David and uh, Jacob all laughed a whole lot because the first worship service on Tuesday night this last week, um, the preacher got up and asked us to turn to Rev- uh, Lamentations chapter 3, and he preached the same text that Tim preached Sunday a week ago. Um, and we joked about how he must, he must have, at least for at least the first 10 minutes of his sermon, must have just copied what you preached last week because he said a lot of the same kind of things. And, um, such an encouraging passage, that Lamentations chapter 3. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and has bowed down within me. Stop. Christian, do you ever feel like that? That the bitterness of the wormwood and the gall just will not cease their torment. That your soul continually remembers these hard things and is bowed down within you. And Jeremiah calls to himself, This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God has come near to us in the person and work of Christ. And he calls us to wait upon him as he leads and guides. And he is faithful always. Never failing, never ceasing. Always merciful, always our faithful God. For all who are in Christ, trust it and believe. As we close, and I'll confess it's bittersweet for me. I do want us to back up and and sort of remember the big picture of Exodus. Consider in the first place on, on, on this one side what one author called the dark shadow of enslavement that was upon the people of God at the beginning of Exodus. I want you to go all the way back to the beginning. There was no explicit declaration that they were under a cloud or, or a, a shadow of any kind. But you remember from Exodus chapter 1, so the, the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so we may say at one point there early on in this book in in chapter 1 that the people were at that time under sort of cloud of oppression, that their lives were were covered by this this bitter work and these relentless taskmasters who ministered on behalf of, of a murderous king. But now at the other end, here at the end of Exodus 40, the people are under an entirely different kind of cloud. You remember there in Exodus chapter 2, the the people cried out and their cry for rescue came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and He delivered them from their bondage. 
And he brought them into a relationship with him. And after many of these words back and forth that we have studied, the Lord has now descended in the cloud to dwell among them. So they began under the dark cloud of of bondage and slavery, and now they end up under a cloud of fire and glory. Alec Motier writes this, Between these two clouds, the sovereign Lord of the whole earth has routed all the power of the enemy. He has granted his people deliverance. He has brought them to himself by the blood of the lamb. Remember the Passover? He has graced them with his directive law and and come in the fullness of his person to take up residence in their midst as their indwelling God. This is the whole story of the book of Exodus. And I declare it to you as well tonight, beloved, that just as we once were under the cloud of sin and death, just as we were once in bondage to the evil one and we walked around this world following after the prince of the power of the air, just like everybody else and all the other sons of disobedience. So in Christ, we have been freed from that cloud and shadow and now live under a new cloud of glory and fire. Our Lord Jesus has routed all of the power of the enemy and he has saved you from death. And he has conquered sin and granted you deliverance from its domain. And he has brought you to God by the blood of his cross. Listen, this is the story of Exodus, our glorious deliverance from sin and death into the glory of God. And we taste it just a moment right now. But one day, someday, we will know it full in glory without any sin at all. And what a day that will be. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, would you come by the ministry of your Spirit and write the truth of your Word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.